If you'd like to follow with me in your Bibles, I'll be reading from the second book of Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us toward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great, ma- with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Good morning to each one. It is so good to be here and to be able to worship God together this morning. Those of you who are visiting, let me echo the sentiments given earlier and let you know that we're so glad that you're here and uh, have chosen to come and worship with us today. And we hope that you will um, allow us an opportunity perhaps to get to visit with you and get to know you a little bit. And perhaps there's some way that we can help you or serve you. We'd love to do that as well. This morning, we we want to consider this statement that is found in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 10. It's a statement of fact. The statement is, but the day of the Lord will come. I want you to think with me about this phrase or this idea of the day of the Lord. That phrase is found no less than 25 times in scripture. In fact, 25 times at minimum, not counting several derivatives. We read about it uh, in a large or to a large degree, we see it in the Old Testament prophets. Like, for example, in Joel chapter 1 and verse 15, Joel will say, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And then in Amos chapter 5 and verse number 18, Amos will say, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. And the reason that Amos would say that is because the day of the Lord is a title that designates essentially the day or a day of judgment. It is a day of the Lord's wrath or a day when the Lord visits uh, humanity in judgment. When the Old Testament prophets wrote about the day of the Lord, they were writing about that time in which the Lord would punish his people. He would take them away into captivity in which judgment would be unleashed upon them because of their sin, because of their iniquity. In the New Testament, we find the same terminology that's used. Like, for example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 10, the Apostle Paul talks about the coming day of the Lord or the day of judgment. And he makes this statement. He says, speaking of Jesus, when he comes... In that day, referencing the day of the Lord, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because, excuse me, our testimony among you was believed. In the previous letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 2, as Paul discussed the surety of the Lord's coming in the previous chapter, he said, for you yourselves know perfectly, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is a phrase that we find a number of times in God's word, Old Testament and New Testament alike, and that phrase or that designation is a title that is pointing to a time in which the Lord will come in judgment 
upon his people. Well, we find that statement also in our passage this morning, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Again, it's a statement of fact. It's a statement of guarantee. But the day of the Lord will come. But now here's the question. What will happen when the day of the Lord comes? What events will unfold on that day that's, that uh, has been guaranteed or it's whose arrival is guaranteed in God's word? There are a number of different ideas that have existed throughout the religious world for, I guess, uh, decades, maybe hundreds of years, if not, if not a little bit more. There is a doctrine that is referred to as premillennialism. And the premillennialist doctrine suggests that when the day of the Lord comes, that there will be a, a rapture of God's people, that there's going to be a terrible time of tribulation, that um, Jesus is going to come back and that he is going to uh, occupy the physical throne of David in Jerusalem for a millennium. There is a doctrine that is referred to as realized eschatology, Sometimes it's just referred to simply as the AD 70 doctrine. And that doctrine suggests that the day of the Lord, in fact, already has come. That this language has to do with the events that unfolded in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so when we read about judgment and we read about resurrection and all of these things, they would suggest those events have already happened. Then there is the idea that this world, when the Lord comes, that it's going, to be, uh, it's going to be renewed or it's going to be renovated. What is right? What does the Bible actually say? What I want us to do this morning is I want us to remember, first of all, some of the principles that we discussed last, last Sunday morning. And those principles are that we have to be very careful when we handle God's word. Remember that Paul told the Corinthians to be careful not to go beyond or above what is written. Meaning that we have the responsibility to stay within the boundaries or the marked lines of scripture. We are to handle aright the word of truth. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15? And so we have to be careful not to draw conclusions that God has not made not to read into God's word things that are not there, but rather to simply, in a straightforward manner, read and study and, and interpret God's word and say exactly what it says, no more and no less. This morning I want us, with that thought in mind, to look at 2 Peter chapter 3 as a whole, and we're going to use this chapter as a roadmap in order to try and answer the question as to what will happen on the day of the Lord. What's going to happen when the Lord returns? Open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's talk first a little bit about what's going on in 2 Peter. First of all, this book, this book is a book composed, of course, of only three chapters. 2 Peter chapter 1 is about spiritual growth. 2 Peter chapter 2 is about false teachers. And 2 Peter chapter 3 is about the day of the Lord. In this book, we find the word know or the word knowledge 16 times. That, of course, makes that the key word of this book, to know or to have knowledge. And what Peter does is he encourages, Christ, uh, he encourages spiritual growth and perseverance, endurance, particularly in light of the second coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and false teachers who were saying some things that were inaccurate and inappropriate about the day of the Lord, among other things. 
2 Peter chapter 3 deals with scoffers who deny the second coming. And I want you to notice with me as we begin in verses 1 to 4, the claim of the scoffers. Look at the claim of the scoffers. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 4. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, from the beginning of creation. I want you to notice with me three things that are found in these four verses with the claim of the scoffers. Number one, there is the reality. The word scoffer has to do with mockery. Literally, what Peter is describing are these folks who are hostile and who fight against the revelation of God, that is the word that he's given, and godliness, that is living a life in, according, in accordance with the word that God has revealed. So these scoffers make mockery of God's revelation, and Peter says they will come. There's the reality of their coming, first of all, in verse number 3. Then second, notice there's a motive. There's a motive. He says they will come, verse number 3, and he says they're going to be walking according to their own lust, meaning that they are motivated only by their own desires. What they say is not necessarily because it's true, but rather because it benefits them. If you want to read more about that, then go back and read the second chapter of this book. Number three, there is their message. There is the reality, there is the motive, and then there's their message. And what is it? According to verse number four, the Lord's not coming. Where is he, they say? Where is the promise of his coming? Look, since the fathers, he says, uh, since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, nothing has changed. God has not intervened, and the sun continues to rise, and the sun continues to set every day just as it always has. That's the claim of the scoffers. Their reality, their motive, and their claim. The Lord's not coming. Nothing's going to change. Now let's look second at their forgetfulness. Look at the forgetfulness of the scoffers, beginning in verse number 5. Look what Peter says. Peter says, for this they willfully forget. Notice why they forget, by the way. This isn't accidental. It's not some fact that has slipped their mind, but rather for this they willfully, intentionally is the idea, they forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But he says in verse 7, the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire unto the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The scoffers claim in the first four verses is that nothing's ever changed. What they forget in verses 5 to 7 is they're wrong. It had. Notice that Peter looks back into history and he appeals to the flood of Noah. And what he's doing by appealing to the flood of Noah is that he is simply giving an example. Now, this is a very important point. It's a key exegetical or a key interpretive point in this chapter. I want you to notice that what Peter is doing is Peter is making a contrast between the fact of God's intervention 
and not the logistics of it. Let me say that again. Peter is making a contrast between the fact of God's intervention, not the logistics of it. Now, what I mean by that is that the flood is not being compared with the judgment to come. Peter is not trying to say that God is going to do with the world in the day which is to come a similar thing that he did to the world looking, uh, looking back to the time or to the flood of Noah. We're not comparing or contrasting the, the, excuse me, the logistics. We're comparing or contrasting the fact. It is only the fact that God intervened in the past and the fact that God will intervene in the future that Peter is trying to get across to, uh, Peter is trying to get across to them here. They say the Lord's not coming. In fact, he never has come and nothing ever has changed. Peter says, you're wrong. Something has changed. The Lord has intervened in the affairs of humanity and in this world in time past. Example, the flood. He intervened with the flood. And, verse number 7, he says, but the heavens of the earth, which we have now, they're preserved, they're waiting, which means what? He intervened in the past. He's going to intervene in the future. That's the contrast. That's the idea. Now we're going to slow down in the next section. Look at the surety of the day of the Lord, verses 8 to 10. I want you to look with me at some of the terminology that Peter uses. The surety of the day of the Lord. But, he says, contrast. The scoffers say he's not coming. They forget that he has intervened before and he will intervene again. But, beloved, you is the idea here. They may willingly forget this, but you do not forget it. You do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. It's a metaphor. What he's saying is that God is not bound by time. And so therefore the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, he says, as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We're talking now about the surety of the day of the Lord, and I want you to look at some of the things that Peter says in this context. First of all, he wants them to know that God is not going to forget, verse 8 and verse 9. God is not bound by time, and the Lord is not uh, slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, verse number 9. In other words, just because the Lord has not returned yet does not mean that he has forgotten. Just because the Lord hasn't returned yet does not mean that he will not. Instead, what Peter says is what we're seeing is his long-suffering. The Lord has not returned, really, because he is long-suffering. In fact, uh, Peter will go on and talk about the long-suffering of God toward the end of the chapter and talk about how the long-suffering of God, uh, the long-suffering of God will lead to our repentance or lead to our righteousness. The fact that God has not come means that he's being patient. It means that with every second that ticks away, that's one more second that God in his patience and in his love has given for me in order to get my life right with him. That's the first thing that he says, verse 8 and verse number 9. But now look what he says in verse 10. It is important that we look at the, the, the terminology and the words that Peter uses and look at how those terms are defined. Peter describes the day of the Lord in verse number 10. He says, it will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away. I want you to look at that word, pass away, that term. The uh, lexicons define this term in this way. To come to an end and no longer be there and to disappear. 
And another lexicon describes that term in this way. It means that the heavens will cease to exist. He then goes on and he says they're going to pass away with a great noise. And he says the elements, they're going to melt. The elements, of course, are the building, the material building blocks of the universe. And Peter uses this word melt, and the lexicons will say that that word melt means this, to be reduced by violence to its component parts or to be destroyed. He then goes on at the end of the verse, and he says, both the earth and the works that are in it, that they will be burned up. I want to stop and talk about that just for a moment. You may, if you're using, maybe I'm using the New King James Version, but you might be using perhaps the English Standard Version of the Bible or maybe the New American Standard. Or maybe you have become familiar with the fact that there is what uh, scholars refer to as a textual variant at the end of this passage. It's really not a big deal. It just means that a textual variant means that you have one manuscript and maybe it has a word right here and then you have another manuscript and it has the same word but maybe it's in a different order. Those, that's an example of a textual variant. And so the textual variant that is here is a, a word that, that sometimes can be translated as, as found. So you have basically two different things that are going on here. In the New King James Version... The earth and all the works that are in it are going to be burned up. That's consistent with what the Bible says in other passages, like Hebrews 6 and verse number 8, where the writer says that the end of the earth, the designated end, if you will, is to be burned. But then someone says, well, it says be found. What if it says be found? What does that mean? Well, if it really is to be interpreted be found, the, the, the meaning doesn't change at all. What it means if it's be found is that it is to be laid bare for destruction, or it's to be discovered for judicial sentence. Or one uh, uh, lexicon said, that means that the earth and the works that are therein will be unable to hide from the doom that is decreed by God. So you still get to the same place. We have a situation in which Paul says the, el- the heavens are going to pass away, which means they're going to come to an end and no longer be there, and they're going to disappear. And then he says the elements are going to melt. And this word melt, by the way, is the same word that's translated dissolved in the next couple of verses. And the word melt, he says, means that it's going to be reduced by violence to its component parts. It's going to be destroyed. And then it's either going to be, if one translation is right, burned up. Or if the other translation is right, it's going to be discovered for judicial sentence. It's going to be laid bare for destruction. It's going to be unable to hide from the doom that is decreed by God. But wait, there's one more. In the most recent manuscript discovery, the United Bible Society manuscript, the UBS 5, actually says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10 that all the works that are therein shall not be found. Shall not be found. I would suggest to you that that's consistent with how the other terms that are used in this passage are, um, are defined. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a little bit, all right? So hold your, hold your pencil there. Now let's look at verses 11 to 13. Preparing for the day of the Lord. Notice in verse number 11, he uses the word therefore. Therefore, we're building or drawing a conclusion based on the information that has come previously. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, remember that dissolved is the same word as melt, And it means to reduce by violence into its component parts or to destroy. Since all of these things are going to be reduced by violence into their component parts or destroyed, 
What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? There are basically two things that the Apostle Peter identifies in this section, verses 11 to 13, that describe how we should live our lives or how we should react in knowledge of the reality of the day of the Lord. Remember, this chapter begins by talking about scoffers. And these scoffers are saying, the Lord ain't coming. And then Peter says, well, you're wrong. He has intervened before. He will intervene again. In fact, the day of the Lord is coming. And when he intervenes again, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. He says that the, um, the heavens, they're going to come to an end and no longer be there. They're going to disappear and cease to exist. He says the elements, the material uh, building blocks of this universe are going to be reduced by violence to their component parts and they're going to be destroyed. And he says the earth and the works that are in it are going to be burned up. The works, are not going to, the works in it are not going to be found. They won't be there anymore. So since all of, that thing, all of that's going to happen, what does that mean for me? He says, number one, holiness and godliness. He says, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? He's talking about just general Christian living. The whole point is that we ought to purify our lives and that we ought to strive to be faithful to God. Looking forward to, this is the second thing, look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So, Two things here. How should I live in the present? Number one, a holy and a godly life. Number two, I should look forward to the second coming. I would direct your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as a good section to give commentary on that point. Those who are New Testament Christians have no need to dread the second coming of the Lord, but rather should look forward to the second coming of God with earnest anticipation. But... How should we live then in light of the future? It's the present, now the future. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Just for a moment before we talk about that passage, or I should say rather as we talk about that passage, I want you to think for just a minute about some of the things that we looked at last week. First of all, I want you to remember some of the language that Isaiah used. Remember in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 3 and following? Isaiah began to talk about the destruction of Gentile nations, the the judgment of Gentile nations, and in a figurative way, Isaiah used some of this very same language to describe their destruction. And then in Isaiah 51, verses 4 to 6, he described the judgment of the Jews... And he used the same kind of language to describe their judgment and destruction. And then in Isaiah 65 and 66, he described, as we looked at last week, this new arrangement that's coming. Out with the old Judaism, in with the new Christianity and the church and the Messiah and everything that he's going to bring in. Second, I want you to look at the wording that Peter uses in 2 Peter 3 and verse 13. Notice that he uses the word new The word new, by definition, means, according to the lexicons, recently made and superior to what it succeeds. Recently made and superior to what it succeeds. So we have Isaiah in the background where he uses the same language to describe a new arrangement. We have the word new in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, which indicates something that is recently made and something that is superior to what it succeeds. 
Now put your bookmark there and let's consider one other passage until we come back and bring it all together. What about Revelation chapter 21? Revelation chapter 21 and 22 also are important to notice in a discussion about the day of the Lord because in this chapter, I'll read Revelation 21 and verse 1, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We'll stop right there for the, um, for the sake of time. A few things to keep in mind when we're reading the book of Revelation. Number one, obviously, we're reading, about a, we're reading a book that is a book of symbols. And as we get to chapter 21 and 22, I would suggest to you that the word, the symbol that ought to come to mind with these two chapters is victory. In fact, that's the theme, or one of the themes anyway, of the whole book. Victory over the devil, victory over sin, victory over death. And remember, as uh, Brother Ramsey used to say, if you can overcome self, sin, and Satan, then you can come on over and be with me in heaven. Overcoming, or victory, is a theme of this book. And when we get to chapter 21 and 22, we are reading about victory. Second, I want you to notice that there's parallelism between Isaiah and between Peter and between what John writes in Revelation 21 and 22. All of them write about the new heavens and the new earth. All of them write in context of new heavens and new earth about the old uh, being judged and going away and about something new that is coming into existence. Here's another thing to keep in mind from last week. We looked at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 last week. You remember which describes Jerusalem, a current city? But in that case, it's a reference to the church. As we get to Revelation chapter 21... Verse 1 and 2, we're reading about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. The current, there's a current city, Jerusalem, if you will, a city in the current arrangement. There's a city in the one that's to come too, the new arrangement. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, and Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 14, the Hebrews writer talks about an eternal rest, the rest that awaits the people of God. Those who are inhabitants of the city, which is the church, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 22. And so by the time we get to Revelation 21, Frank Pack said, the new heaven and the new earth is that which is spoken of by our Lord. It would appear that this is best understood as the vision of heaven itself. Thought of in terms of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, in the new heaven and the new earth. Now go back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and let's try to put it all together. Isaiah spoke of the new heaven and the new earth and what Isaiah saw was a new arrangement. Peter sees a new heaven and a new earth in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, and he sees another arrangement as well. But what Peter is describing in 2 Peter 3, 13 is the eternal arrangement. Isaiah saw the church which was to come and that which the Messiah was to usher in. Peter is looking forward on the other side. He sees an eternal arrangement. He sees, just like Isaiah, a new dwelling place or a new mode of existence. He is referencing the eternal abode of God's people with the Father in heaven. Now, there's nothing in 2 Peter chapter 3, if we're trying to take these texts for exactly what they say, there is nothing in these passages and their contexts which would suggest the things that we mentioned at the beginning of our study. There is nothing in these passages or these contexts that would suggest a premillennial kingdom because, as Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 3, there will be no earth left for the kingdom upon which the kingdom could exist. 
There is no reason in 2 Peter chapter 3 to reason to renovation or renewal because the language and the terminology that Peter uses in this passage has nothing to do with renewal or renovation, but rather it has to do with destruction. And so what will happen then on the day of the Lord? What does the Bible say? The Bible teaches us that on the day of the Lord, the Lord is going to return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The dead are going to rise, also 1 Thessalonians 4 and John chapter 5. Those who are alive will meet them in the air, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The earth will be destroyed, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll stand before the Lord in judgment, Matthew chapter 25, and then we'll enter into eternity. If we're trying to say exactly what the Bible says, no more and no less, then that's as far and as much as we can say because that is what Scripture says. We're told by some that the Lord is going to return to set up a kingdom. We're told by some that the present earth is going to be renewed or renovated and it's going to become heaven. But neither of these two assertions can be sustained simply by looking at what the passages say. Now we've considered Isaiah's new heavens, new earth. We've considered Peter's new heaven and new earth. And just briefly, John's. Next week we have one passage left to look at, and that's Romans chapter 8. So I would encourage you to read that and uh, think about it as we prepare for, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now, and it may be that there's someone here who has a need to respond, thinking about the reality of the coming of the day of the Lord, the fact that the Lord's going to come in judgment, that we're going to stand before the judgment bar of God, and we're going to give an account for the lives that we've lived, for how we have lived and spent the time that God has given us here in this world. Are you a Christian? If not, why not? The Bible says that God's desire is for all people to become Christians, to name the name of Christ, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins, to be added to the body of Jesus Christ. Are you, are you ready and willing to do that this morning? Maybe you're a Christian. You're thinking about your life and how you've lived it. You're thinking about what Peter says. Now, knowing that these things will be dissolved, he says, knowing that the Lord is going to be returned and that the earth is going to be destroyed and that we're going, to, we're going to give an account of our lives, how should we live? He says we need to live holy lives, we need to live godly lives, and we need to look forward to that arrangement, that eternal abode with God, which is to come. Are you living that way? Are you anticipating eternity with the Father? Or when you think about the judgment day, does it send a chill up your spine? If you have need to respond this morning, then we invite you to come while we stand and sing the invitation song together.